Well, hello everybody. This is Chris in February of 2021, and I am reintroducing a podcast I did. Well, the podcast itself I started in the early 2000s, but this particular series of episodes called 15 Albums in 15 Minutes for 15 Friends was recorded, I think, in 2010. This is part one. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, everybody. It's Chris. How's it going? This is the podcast edition of From a Whisper to a Scream. It's been quite a long time since I've recorded a podcast. I was recently inspired by a Facebook note that my friend Rob posted that was entitled 15 Albums in 15 Minutes for 15 Friends. The premise went something like this. Actually, it went exactly like this. Don't take too long to think about it. 15 albums you've heard that will always stick with you. List the first 15 you can recall in no more than 15 minutes. Tag at least 15 friends, including me, because I'm interested in seeing what albums my friends choose. My first reaction was panic, actually. Not, you know, didn't have a panic attack or anything, but <laughs> uh, music's been just such a significant part of my life that uh, so, much, so much of it just came into my head at once. It was almost uh, dizzying. But then I took a step back and grabbed a sheet of paper and a pen and tried, like the, uh, like the instruction said, to not put too much thought into it, but more to come up with just the first 15 albums that came into my head. And some of them were very quick and very obvious because of the stronghold that they've had and where and when in my life they came, uh, came to be. But then I guess my mind started trying to compartmentalize things and thinking of specific music genres and why a particular album might have been important in that genre. And that, and that kind of came into me. Yeah, I am a little bit OCD, I guess. And uh, so that's kind of what happened with the list. So over the uh, this series of three podcasts that I'm going to put together, and this one being the first one, I will cover all 15 albums, uh, five at a time. I'll play a little music from each of them and talk a little bit more in depth about each of them and hopefully you will enjoy it and uh, so will I. So here goes. The first album that came into my head as I was creating this list came to my head almost instantly because it was the first album I had ever owned, the Steve Miller Band's Book of Dreams. I remember it like it was yesterday. I can feel the album in my hand. I remember the smell. For those of you that remember buying vinyl records, when they were brand new and you took off that plastic wrapping, they had kind of a smell to it. Um, the cardboard, it, it was just, I don't know, the, it, it's almost similar to the experience of opening up a pack of baseball cards for those of you that have done that. That smell you get, which is some, in baseball cards, is kind of a combination of the freshly cut cardboard and that stick of what they referred to as gum. I'm not sure what it really was. But there was that, that cardboard smell of a brand new album. And, and then pulling out the vinyl. And always for me, the, the fun of opening up a vinyl record was to see if it was going to be the kind that opened up or if it was just a single-fold album. And then pulling out the, the sleeve that held the vinyl record to see if the words were going to be printed on it, if there were graphics. And, you know, you read as much as you can. It was a pretty exciting time. I was, I was really into it. The idea of owning albums was important to me. I've been very influenced by my good friend Danny O'Connor. He was a big album guy. And so much of my musical influences and my collecting of music, my desire to collect and own music, was 
directly because of him was just from hanging out with him. He was a, a big influence on that part of my life, and I'm grateful. And it, I'm very grateful that uh, I've gotten a chance to reconnect with him thanks to Facebook of late. Danny out there listening? Another weird thing, you know, music is one of those things that when you listen to a piece of music or you think back about music, it not only brings back memories of, of the music itself and, and things about it, but where you were at that place in time. And an odd memory I have of this record was having a discussion about it amongst the group of friends that we were in and hearing Kathleen White say the words Electrolux Imbroglio which happens to be one of the tracks on the record. It's a, it's a short, less than one minute instrumental track. But I just kind of remembered the way she said it, the sound of her voice saying it. It's funny, looking back after all these years, uh, we're talking about well over 30 years. And, and I remember it like it was yesterday. It was pretty neat. So what I've done is I picked a song off the record that I'm going to play for you. It's one that you all know and that you all love, and it's called Jungle Love. And it goes a little something like this.
damn, that song just never gets old for me. <laughs> I love it. I do have a, a little factoid about that record. I did a little bit of searching up, and I, I remember hearing this at some time before, but evidently the Steve Miller Band didn't go into the studio to record this record. Rather, that when he went in to record Fly Like an Eagle the year before, uh, well, it came out a year before, so whatever they went in to record that, the Fly Like an Eagle album, they actually had recorded 20-some-odd tracks, and initially the idea was maybe to put out a, a double record, and Steve Miller decided that he just wanted to break it up, and he picked the particular songs to be released on the Fly Like an Eagle record, canned the rest, and a year later released Fly Like an Eagle. Excuse me. <laughs> a year later decided to release Book of Dreams. And I guess the formula worked. It was pretty successful. I think the other thing, too, is this was a situation where uh, you had... This record came out in 77. In 76, you had Fly Like an Eagle. A few years before that, in 73, you had The Joker. And with The Joker, uh, early in the 70s, in 73, Steve Miller Band took on a new level of fans that, that looked at him as more of a mainstream rock artist. Uh, but and thought that that was pretty much the beginning of the Steve Miller Band, but Book of Dreams actually was his 10th record, so he had been pretty relevant many years before. It was just the style of music he was playing was a little bit different. So anyway, let's move on to number two. The second record on my list was Kill Em All by Metallica. You compare the two from you compare the Metallica record to the Steve Miller Band record. It's like whoa, <laughs> but it just it just came to my head at that time. So it's being second on the list. It's it's not in any kind of numerical order other than as they just kind of came into my head and I got them onto paper. But Metallica was a, a very interesting uh, situation. Uh, well, it wasn't really a situation. Uh, they came out in the early '80s. And uh, by this time, I had already been listening to bands like Twisted Sister and Motley Crue and Sabbath and Zeppelin, the bands that kind of were part of what that hard rock, heavy metal genre was all about. And as we got into the 80s, and the Steve Miller Band was actually interesting since we just listened to it and, and heard a little bit about it. In the 70s, if you were to look at kind of the dichotomy of, of the music scene, yeah, the best way to to categorize it or, or break it up would be uh, probably AM uh, radio versus FM radio, the type of music that you would hear. FM was more about the the what we refer to mostly now as classic rock uh, and the rock and roll and the harder stuff. And AM was more about the pop type music and the bubblegum type music and and, and that type of stuff. And then, of course, let's not forget the disco era that happened in the 70s, although some of us want to and try have tried to. <laughs> it, it was a significant portion of the 70s, but it kind of had its own wavelength in there. When we get into the 80s, if we were to, to refer to music in, in, in the framework of a dichotomy, you can look at the, the heavy metal movement, or what some people refer to as the hair bands movement, and the synth pop or new wave movement. I had, at the time, while I was pretty diverse in my musical tastes, once I fell into that metal category, I was really into exploring it deeply. But then, you know, 
listening to these bands that I was listening to already, the Twisted Sisters and Sabbath and Motley Crue and all that stuff was one thing. And in fact, at the time, Bon Jovi was even categorized in, as a heavy metal band, even though looking back all these years later, uh, they're clearly more of a rock and roll pop type band. It's like it's almost like saying Bruce Springsteen's heavy metal. And in fact, you want to go back to controversy, some people referred to Jethro Tull as heavy metal at one time. But going back to Metallica, when I first heard Kill 'Em All, which was their first record, this was like nothing I'd ever heard before. It, it was driving and pounding the drums and the guitar was being played so fast, yet there was still a melody behind it. It was gritty and it was intense. And it just, it was almost like getting punched in the face. And then, you know, picture the scene in the movie where some guy just, he, he's got you down on the floor and he's kind of straddling on top of you, just punching your face in the ground, punching your face into the ground. And then in one instance, he just grabs you by, you know, your shoulders and picks you up in a second and starts talking to you. That's, that's what it sounds like when Metallica is talking to you. It just doesn't feel as painful. <laughs> For some reason, it feel, it's exhilarating. And I wanted more of it. It was really intense. And I'm going to play a song right now off the Kill 'Em All record called Motor Breath. And the reason I chose that song was mostly because it was the only song under the, under like 12 minutes. Metallica. One of the interesting things about this genre of music, it's it, it's sometimes referred to as speed metal. And Metallica took it to a whole different extreme because they wrote, in a lot of cases over the years, some songs that were epic. You know. 9, 10, 12 minute songs. This song was clocked in somewhere in the 4 to 5 minute range, I think. Uh, anyway, it's really intense and is a, a great example of the style of music and, and the sound and everything about what really excited me about Metallica, and I still listen to them to this day. I love it. I hope you like this song too.
late Cliff Burton on bass, James Hetfield on vocals and guitar, Kirk Hammett, lead guitar, and the annoying yet talented Lars Ulrich on drums, Metallica. Doesn't that stuff just wake you up? <laughs> makes you makes your blood start circulating? That's good stuff. I mean, they, they could figure out a way to clear arteries with that kind of music, I think. I hope they do, as a matter of fact. I might need it. <laughs> Number three on my list of albums is the self-titled album by Marshall Crenshaw. It was his first record. came out in the early 80s. Clearly an extremely different type of music than uh, Metallica. Again, there's no real correlation other than uh, it, it just happened to hit the pen and paper third. And <laughs> Marshall Crenshaw, if you were to categorize him today, you'd probably put him under a commonly used uh, title that we call singer-songwriter today. We didn't have that category back in the 70s and 80s. And though I, I wouldn't necessarily categorize him as a folk artist, in fact, the music he's made since this first record falls much more into that singer-songwriter category. This was really a, a pure pop record. If you were to uh, study a little bit about Marshall Crenshaw, I'm not sure that you'd want to study him. That's uh, really a bad choice of words. I'm going to take that back. <laughs> uh, having listened to Marshall Crenshaw in interviews and read interviews because I, I have an interest in, in him, his music, I know that he was heavily influenced by Buddy Holly and by the Beatles. In fact, if you dig back, you'll find out that he actually played John Lennon in a local production of Beatlemania at one time. And the funny thing is I got turned on to Marshall Crenshaw by listening to someone else, Robert Gordon, who coincidentally, by the way, has the next record on, on my list, uh, happened to perform one of Crenshaw's songs. In fact, the song that I'm going to play for you off the Marshall Crenshaw record. Um, but once I heard the song, I wanted to learn more about who wrote it, where it came from, and, and I, you know, you never know. When I, when I first heard it, I, I, I thought that Robert Gordon wrote it. So once I got the Robert Gordon record and I saw that Marshall Crenshaw was the writer of the song, I had to go find the Marshall Crenshaw record. And I sure as heck did, and I'm glad I did. When I listened to the, the, the whole record, it just it just really felt good. The sound was, was both retro yet current. It was really a fresh outlook on what I felt was contemporary pop music and, and where it could go and what it, what it was in that moment. And uh, the, the flavor of that record was just instantly classic for me. And I don't, you know, looking back, I don't think I've ever let an entire year go by without listening to that record from start to finish. And that doesn't sound like a great accomplishment. But over the years, back in the vinyl days, I had as many as 4,000 vinyl records. And I now have somewhat in a neighborhood of 2,500 CDs. So there's a lot of music in my collection. I mean, there's over 11,000 songs on my iPod. I, I listen to a lot of music. I've collected a lot of music over the years. So to be able to say one album that stuck with you from the early 80s, you know, 27, 25 years, whatever it is, and, and you probably haven't let a whole year go by without listening to it from start to finish. That's actually saying something significant. I want to play a song that uh, started it off. No, it didn't start it off. Let me... <laughs> the song that turned me on to Marshall Crenshaw, even though it wasn't him performing it at first, this is Marshall Crenshaw in Some Day, Some Way.
that is Marshall Crenshaw and his version of his own song, Someday, Someway, off his first album released in 1982, simply titled Marshall Crenshaw. It's a great record if you ever come across a copy of it. In fact, I'll go one further. I'll say you should force yourself to come across a copy of it and listen to it. I think you'll enjoy it. Great record. Let's move on to number four. And the artist is Robert Gordon. The album is called Too Fast to Live, Too Young to Die. So the story behind how Robert Gordon came into my uh, musical world starts with a, uh, a young man who's no longer young. Well, he's as young or old as I am at the time. But uh, a guy named Stephen Riccardi, who was my cousin Christine's boyfriend. He was big into the rockabilly revival of the early 80s. I think the most notable act, the most recognizable act uh, of that movement would be the Stray Cats. But Robert Gordon was very prominent. He uh, recorded a few records in the late 70s with a guy named Link Ray. One of those songs is one that you hear in the background right now. It's a little ditty called Fire, written by Bruce Springsteen. Um, those of us who are Springsteen fans have heard Springsteen perform that song many times over. What some of us may not know is that that song was written specifically for the Robert Gordon Link Ray sessions. And furthermore, that Springsteen played piano on those sessions. We're going to play a little bit in the background for you. Enjoy. Cause when we kiss fire We're late at night I chase you home Say I wanna stay. You say you wanna be alone. You say you don't need me, but you can't hide your desire. Cause when we It's not over. Want to hit a rest? All right. I'm just messing with you. Here's the rest. There's not much left. Enjoy. Oh, fire. Mm, fire. Oh, fire. Oh, fire. I hadn't planned on playing that track for you, but I got kind of caught up 
<laughs> I'm going to play the first track off the Too Fast to Live, Too Young to Die record. This one's called Red Hot, and I think it best exemplifies the style of rockabilly music, especially how it kind of morphed into what it sounded like during the 80s revival while maintaining the integrity of the original form of rockability uh, that was popular in the 50s. Um, but moreover, than it, it also exemplifies the style of Robert Gordon and his interpretation of the rockabilly style. So this is called Red Hot. Enjoy. My gal is red hot. Your gal ain't doodly squat. Yeah! My gal is red hot. Your gal ain't doodly squat. Well, she ain't got money, but man, she's really got a lot. guaranteed that at some point during that song, if not during all of it, some part of your body was moving. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's a great record, it's a great style of music, and, and I can't get enough of it. It's, it's just really good stuff. And it's uh, clearly, it's stuck in my head for all these years, and uh, always something I found to be pretty important and, and special. So the last song I'm going to cover today, or I should say the last album and song I'm going to talk about today on the list, number five, is the Ramones' Road to Ruin album. Now, I, I can't say for certain where it was that I first heard the Ramones. I do know that they were formed in the early 70s in Queens. I grew up in Brooklyn, so New York, New York, you know what I'm saying? I know that uh, I know that going back to Steve Riccardi, who introduced me to Robert Gordon, he 
was a big Ramones fan, a huge Ramones fan, and that's probably, if not the first place I heard Ramones music, certainly one of the bigger influences on, on how they kind of stuck with me. The Ramones were pretty influential in the punk rock movement uh, in this country for sure. Uh, I think that, you know, you say punk rock to anyone who knows what punk rock is, one of the names that's going to come up is the Sex Pistols, one of the names that's going to come up is the Ramones. Sometimes the Clash often comes up and and I don't know, I, I haven't really uh, spent any time thinking about it or thinking about what other people might think about it, but while there's certainly a punk sound in, in the Clash's music, I would also categorize them uh, as more of a hybrid, maybe uh, punk plus ska and something else. I don't know. But this isn't about the Clash, this is about the Ramones. And I'm going to play probably the most recognizable Ramones song of all time for you right now. I don't have to tell you what it is. You know what it is. Here it is. Truth be told, so do I. Anyway, that's the, the Ramones with I Want to Be Sedated from Road to Ruin, which was their fourth record. And a little, uh, it was that their first record with Marky Ramone on drums. And what's interesting about that to me, some of the memories that are going through my head now, 
I worked in the 80s and the uh, mid 80s at a record shop actually in the earlier part of the 80s now that I think of it uh, a record shop in Brooklyn on the corner of Ocean Avenue and Avenue U called Titus Oaks some of you from Long Island may remember it as well anyway the more important thing by the way Rob Marinoff if you're listening I hope you you'll check me on this story because you'll remember it probably better than I Rob Marinoff is one of my Facebook friends Hopefully he'll get a listen to this and, and hear this. Uh, he was also one of the managers of that store. I worked for him. And uh, he was a mean-ass boss. No, I'm just kidding. It was a lot of fun. But more importantly, uh, I recall Marky Ramon coming into Titus Oaks on at least several occasions. And if I'm not mistaken, on at least one of those occasions, if not more, he was rather desperate. And I don't know if he was trying to sell records or looking for work. <laughs> Oh, my goodness gracious. Also, there was a period when I was in college and uh, working at the radio station. I was at a birthday party held for Joey Ramone at a club in, uh, in New York City. So that was kind of fun. Anyway, uh, that's going to wrap up uh, part one of the podcast series. We'll be back uh, soon with part two, which is going to feature Kiss, Bruce Springsteen, Boston, Steely Dan, and Meatloaf. How's that for an eclectic mix? In the meantime... I can't leave you empty-handed, and I can't go out with just my own voice. So I'm going to play one more track off the Marshall Crenshaw CD. This is the opening track called There She Goes Again. Until next time, peace.